Obviously a difficult passage for us to read today, huh? Obviously, everybody in the room has probably read this story numerous times, hopefully. <laughs> uh, along with the, story, the, the, the events that were re- read from Leviticus 10 and 2 Samuel 6, I think you would probably all agree that they are some of the more frightening passages in all the Bible. Would you not agree? Uh, Uzzah drops dead for touching an ark. And Nadab and Abihu are burned alive for bringing strange fire into the holy place. And Ananias and Sapphira are immediately killed because they lied to God. I am convinced that our culture and our society definitely need to read these passages more. I'm also convinced that I need to read them more. I think our problem is we think way too highly of ourselves and way too little of God. Throughout the Bible, we see there are two types of people revealed in the Bible the redeemed of God and the rejectors of God. And as we trace the events of the Bible, we see these two types of people over and over. Often the true hearts of the people are not revealed when they are first introduced in the biblical stories. But as events unfold, they turn out to be people different than what we thought the first time we read them. We start out thinking, well, this guy seems like an okay guy. Nope, (laughs) not a good one. And as you read longer in a story, you're, you change and you, you realize that ones that we think are redeemed of God were actually rejectors of God. The Bible does this to us, doesn't it? Often. It often leaves us with questions in our mind of the true nature of people, whether or not that person is redeemed or whether he is a rejector. How do we know? Is he really saved or not? Think of some of the characters in the Bible, like Jacob, a deceiver, yet who was chosen by God and loved by God. He deceived often in his life. How about Aaron, the first high priest who at one point made a false god for the people and lied about it and said he threw the stuff in and out popped an image when he had molded it, or later rejects his own god brother who was given that role of leader and has mutiny against him with his sister. Was Aaron a believer or not? Was he redeemed or rejecter? How about King Saul, the first king of Israel who goes from prophesying and leading Israel to some great victories to a man who is harassed by evil spirit and evil spirit and tries to kill David numerous times. Or how about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who goes from making a a, a golden image and demanding that everybody worship it, and then later claiming his own sovereign authority and that everything's his and I did it, look at me, to a man who eats grass and then comes to his senses and testifies to the glory of God. Person after person, there are stories in the Bible 
that show that mankind is fragile, sinful, and even some of the greatest are just men. And sinful at that. One thing becomes clear as you read your Bibles. Our hope is definitely not found in ourselves. Mankind is wicked, and even some of the brightest stars have had many sinful moments. Think of Abraham, and Isaac, and Moses, and David, the judges. <laughs> read through the judges and think, oh, these were God's appointed men to judge. Ooh, some of them have some horrific stories. Even Elijah the prophet calls down fire and then runs for his life. And other prophets like Jonah. I mean, we don't pattern our lives after Jonah, do we? How about even in the New Testament? John the Baptist, it appears, had a time where he struggled. Peter, obviously, all 12 of the disciples run, right? And John Mark, later on, as we'll see in Acts... There's a division that happens, and John Mark goes with Barnabas because Paul didn't want him and trust him to be with him. So being able to distinguish between the two types of people, the redeemed and the rejectors in the Bible, is not always an easy task. This was true even in the early church, ladies and gentlemen. Even during the time of mega power and mega grace, there were some who were associated with the early church that were shown to be weak or even false believers within the church. Our passage today exposes two of these weak or false believers. The passage does not make it clear, perfectly clear, that is, the condition of Ananias and Sapphira. I go back and forth on whether or not they were believers who fell into a sin and they were false, or they were false professing believers who were exposed by their sin. I mean, let's face it, uh, we don't show a pattern of lying in our lives, right? That was who we were. We're not liars anymore if we become believers. We don't walk around in perpetual lying, right? But has anybody lied since they became a believer? Uh, yeah. So the fact of the matter is, is that they could have done one sin and boom, God said, that's it. It's not perfectly clear, just like I don't think it's perfectly clear to answer Aaron, King Saul, Nebuchadnezzar, Samson, Jonah in their lives often. But I think this is somewhat intentional by Luke, the divinely inspired author of Acts. The point is not whether these people were regenerate believers. The point is sin and Satan are always prowling around like a lion seeking to devour somebody. Sin can get anyone in this room. And God is a holy and just God, and we must understand that. I think the exhortation from this passage to the reader is, examine yourself, reader, to see if this sin is in you. Check your heart. Examine yourself. If you are confronted by this sin... Go to the only one who can save you from this, and that is Jesus Christ. As the reader thinks on the narrative, he or she should be called to evaluate his or her 
own heart first, and I cannot stress this enough. When we start speculating, was Ananias and Sapphira a believer or not, we're falling into a trap. The trap is this. Am I better than them? Am I a believer? If they were an unbeliever, they're like that. I'm better than them. That would miss the whole point of the passage. The whole point of the passage is this. God is a holy and just God. Examine your heart. Depend upon Him. Trust in Him. That's the point. The reader is also called by the events to focus their attention on who God is. He is a holy God. So that our hearts will be right with God. Beloved, when confronted by sin, what should we do? Cry out to God for mercy. Turn to Him. He is a forgiving God. He is a just God. He is a holy God. But recognize who He is. Know who He is. I'm convinced, I am convinced that if our view of God's holy justice was bigger, sin would be a lot less of a problem in our lives. Completely convinced of that. And I think God intentionally had these events at the beginning of the church to show the church, I am holy. And just because I have sent my son to pay for your sins does not mean that you should look at me as just some loving, benevolent God that only gives grace. I am still a just and holy God who must be honored. God is calling them to attention. He allows Ananias and Sapphira to do this. He allowed their hearts to be exposed so that he could judge them, so that he could show the rest of the church, this is who I am. One thing is clear. If we think about God correctly, then we will not end up doing the same wicked things that they did. We need to better understand who God is and what he's done. So studying passages like this are excellent. Today we're going to see these two different types of people revealed in our passage. We're going to see a man who fixed his hope on the Lord Jesus. And next we're going to see a man and his wife who fixed their focus on themselves and their own fleshly desires. The difference between the two types of character is as different as night and day. In fact, the two people are opposites. Yet both types of characters were part of the early church. And it's very interesting. From an outward perspective, as we'll see as we go along, you wouldn't be able to know it. You wouldn't be able to discern until after God judged them that one was evil and the other one wasn't. One was doing the things right and the one wasn't. We would have thought that both groups were good people. Both types of characters were good people if God wouldn't have judged them. It's a very interesting thought. Generally speaking, the two types of characters are the righteous and the wicked. There's an important point again to make here. The early church reflected a purity that has arguably not been matched since that time. The early church was still, however, not perfect. No church is perfect as long as it's in this world before Jesus returns. 
the description of the early church that we saw in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, are truly amazing, aren't they? Those descriptions are amazing. But the church was still not perfect. However, there is something that distinguished the early church from much of evangelical Christianity today. Arguably, the most distinct feature of the early church that is solely, sorely missing in our church today is a holy fear of God. That's what's missing. We need a holy fear of God. And I would ask, I would plead with all of you in the room, I want you to pray for that. Beg God to give you a holy fear of Him. I want to know you more. I want to reverence you correctly. Ladies and gentlemen, when the Apostle John, remember the Apostle John, what did he do? He laid his head on the breast of Jesus at the Lord's Supper the night before he died, right? Remember that? When, Jesus, when that same John saw Jesus in his glorified state in Revelation 1 on the Isle of Patmos, he fell down as a dead man. Here's our problem. We only see him as the one on the cross. We don't see him as the holy lamb of God who will judge this world. He is both. He is the lamb and he is the lion. He is holy, he is just, and he is gracious and he is kind. We all have a tendency to fall into one side or the other. It's interesting. I, I got an evangelism opportunity right out here before service. A guy was visiting. And I got to talk to him about the gospel. And his whole line was, God is a loving God. God is a loving God. God is a loving God. He doesn't go to church or anything like that, but God's a loving God. I said, God's a holy and just God. And you're going to face him one day. Why was the early church so different? I think they had a proper view of God. And when they didn't have a proper view of God, what did God do? He gave them a bigger glimpse. And that's what, Isaiah, that's what Acts 5 is all about. You need a bigger glimpse of me. Why were they pe the people united? Why were the people sacrificial towards one another? Why did they listen to the apostles so intently? Why were they obedient? Because they knew who God was. The short answer is they had a right understanding of God as a whole. They had a holy fear of God. But they also knew God as their only hope to avoid His judgment. They loved God because they knew He was just and the justifier of those who trusted in Him. In many ways, the events of God's just judgment against these hypocritical professing believers was a purifying influence in the church. This is going to hurt. But I'm convinced we need this too. I'm completely convinced we need that in America. I think evangelical Christianity needs an Ananias and Sapphira moment. I'm just being perfectly honest. Our view of God is small. 
and I think it can run, run rampant even in the reform circles. When people use their liberties as an excuse, their Christian liberties as an excuse to sin, I think people have forgotten God is a holy and just God. My prayer is, is that we don't need an Ananias and Sapphira in this building. My prayer is that this story will be enough. I pray the word of God will impact our hearts today. I'm convinced we need this. God means business, ladies and gentlemen. So let's look at these two types of people in the early church. First, the righteous who feared God. And second, the wicked who did not fear God. As we examine these two types of people, my prayer is, is we will be challenged to examine our own hearts. Second, I pray we will have a similar response as the early church upon seeing God's response. Let's start with the righteous. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, was the apostle, or by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Notice here we see a man, his name was Joseph, better known by most of us as Barnabas. The name Joseph was a well-known Jewish name, obviously. One of the heroes of the Old Testament had this name, as well as Jesus' mother, uh, Jesus' mother's husband was called Joseph. The apostles gave Joseph a different name, probably because he was known as an encourager, or a man who came alongside others to exhort them. Here we see the contrast of characters is obvious from the beginning. Barnabas not only was given a great name, he also lived up to his name. While we will see the opposite is true for Ananias and Sapphira. We will see throughout Acts, throughout this book, Barnabas was truly an encourager. The title, Son of Encouragement, gives the proper explanation of his life and his ministry of this man. So, beloved, let me ask you a question. If there was a name given to you in written scripture, or maybe given by those that are around you, your leaders, your, your people of influence, the people that are in your life, what name would they give you to describe you? What would your wife name you? If she could give you one title, if your spouse could give you one title, what would that be? Would it be the encourager? Would it be the servant? Would it be the helper? Would it be the compassionate one? Would it be the gracious one? Or would your name be more like some of these? The complainer. The burden. The needy one. The unfriendly one. The angry one. Hmm. Beloved, I don't know about you. But I don't want my name to be one of those names. I want to be more like Barnabas, don't you? Beloved, I pray that we would all have names reflecting a life that was not ashamed of the gospel. And that enjoyed the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Next we see the righteous Barnabas was previously a Levite. Interestingly enough, in the law, they were told, Levites were told that they couldn't own land. But as time had gone past along the way, through various refinements of the law, he possibly, or probably, uh, came to own land, maybe even in Cyprus, his, where he was from. He was called a Cyprian, which was not in the promised land. But either way, this land was no longer a priority to Barnabas. Instead, he sought to use the money to help the cause of Christ. So he sold it. Either way, we see that Barnabas owned land, yet he sold and gave the proceeds away. Beloved, this is sacrificial love. This is what the righteous look like. Again, we don't hold on to anything in this world too tightly. We see everything as ultimately God's, and therefore we want to give it away to help others. Bartimaeus is a perfect illustration of Acts 4, 32-35. So Luke moves right into the illustration. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale. And lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. We saw this last week, and Barnabas is the illustration of it, right? Perfect illustration. Barnabas also did not use his contributions to manipulate a desired results. Oh, this is so important. This is the point that is being made when it says, He laid the money at the apostles' feet. Again, giving money is not meant to be a way of gaining authority in a particular situation. A true offering is given to God without strings attached. That's what was implied by this idea of giving it and laying it at the feet of the apostles. The issue is this. You have authority to do with the money whatever you want to do with it. However... Ladies and gentlemen, this is not always the norm for people that sell things and give things away. True believers, however, don't give to get approval or appreciation or authority. You get that, mark that down. That's something to remember. We don't give to get approval or appreciation or authority. We don't do it so that people will like us. We don't do it so that people will show gratitude to us, and we don't do it so that we will have influence. Whatever you do, never give to have influence. It's not about you controlling a circumstance with your money. Friends, when we see here, what we see here is a man that understood Matthew 6, 3 to 4. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He did better than that. He gave it and didn't have his hands in it at all. (laughs) He let them do what they wanted with it. So that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Beloved, this passage here in Matthew 6 
is an exaggeration by Jesus, obviously, to make a point, correct? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is giving in money. Now, this is impossible, isn't it? Can you put it in the offering box over there without your other hand knowing that you're putting it in there? Come on. It knows you're doing the task. It's a part of your body. What's he mean? He's exaggerating it to make a point. Put it in the offering plate without anybody knowing. Don't make it about you. And by laying the offering at the feet of the apostles, Barnabas was giving complete control to the apostles to do with it whatever they thought appropriate. Now I know in a day and an age that we live in, so-called Christian preachers buy Bentleys and jets for themselves. This is much harder to do, and I get it. This is why I would suggest that you know your elders and know your pastors. And you can tell a lot about your pastors by what they teach and how they live. And at the same time, you all need to be careful that you don't try to use your kindness to push your own agenda. This is going to be very, very, very important as we grow larger and larger and larger. Please, please folks... Don't use your wealth and your money to push us around. It's not what it's about. We are going to stand for the truth, Lord willing. We're not going to be professionals. We don't want to be rich. We want the gospel to be proclaimed. The elders are accountable, by the way, to you. Yet you are not supposed to try to manipulate us with your giving. And by the way, this is why ultimately we are uh, ultimately we're accountable to who? God. And one day we will stand before him with everything we do, including what we say from the pulpit. This is why we are committed to a plurality of elders at our church, by the way, and I think the Bible very clearly points to this, so that not one guy owns and runs the show. We attempt to be transparent with you. We work together with you and hope that we can hold each other accountable. But again, we're not apostles and we aren't perfect and we are going to make some wrong decisions. There's going to be times. I'll I'll never forget hearing the story of Grace Community, how the elders all stood up in front of the church at one point in the history of Grace Community, John MacArthur's church. All 38, or at that time probably less, 28 elders or whatever, and stood in front of him and said, we made a mistake with the money. We built a building over here that's not really the best place for a building. We need to tear that building down and put another one that's bigger and has a better location. We made a mistake. Can you forgive us for not being more wise in the way that we used it? Can you imagine? That's, that's great. <laughs> to me, that's great. People being honest, being honest, laying it out there. We're not perfect. We're not apostles. But we're going to do our best, okay? Will you all pray for us? Thank you. Again, as we often have said, servant leaders are those that we're looking for. So please, 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 folks, don't use your money to manipulate us. 
This is an example of the gospel of grace. And by the way, I don't, I'm not even speaking as if I've felt that at all from any of you. But I just want to warn. Does that make sense? just want to encourage. I want to tell you, folks, let's don't go down that road, okay? Let's walk with Jesus and give it to Him and honor Him. Barnabas was a Romans 12, 16 guy, wasn't he? Be of the same man towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. He was a Philippians 2, 3 guy. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. This is what the righteous look like, ladies and gentlemen. Again, I want to make this very clear. When I call Barnabas righteous, I'm not saying he was perfect in and of himself. Barnabas was righteous in the general direction of his life. His overall purpose and direction of his life was to please and to seek and to honor his Lord and Savior. He was declared right by faith in Christ alone, but after he was declared right, his new heart and the Spirit worked in him to demonstrate righteousness. We know this from Psalm 1, don't we? We see it all the way through the Bible. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in whatever he does, or he prospers. I'm not saying Barnabas was perfect. Barnabas was righteous, however, by God's grace. Again, mega grace was working in Barnabas to demonstrate this kind of life. How about us? Or do we need grace? (laughs) His trust in God produced righteousness. God's grace made him different from the world. And he is a dramatic contrast from this second group, the wicked. Let's look at them. The wicked. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. We see the contrasting types of characters here include two people, the wicked Ananias and Sapphira. We see this scene unfolds very much like a trial or a courtroom scene. Notice the defendants are, in, are, are introduced first. We start with the first defendant. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Ananias is a Hebrew name that literally means Yahweh has shown favor. <laughs> Probably because Ananias had property, he was considered the wealthiest in Israel. His name may have been a clue to how his family thought of themselves. Yahweh has shown favor. If you're rich, then that means God has given you favor. You must have done something good, and therefore, you're one of those guys. You're an Ananias. (laughs) But again, at this time in Israel, wealth and beauty were considered special favors of God. Yet we see, as we will see, the higher wealth level did not reveal a similar high commitment level to God. 
Many commentators believe the two Ananias and Sapphira were believers because of their selling property in the first place. But we do see that their hearts are exposed when they are judged by God. So again, I'm not going to even land on it. You might not like that. I'm not going to land on it. Acts 5.1 starts with the adversative but. This could be a contrast of the two sales or people. But again, I'm not going to land on this. I will just say this. The fruit they, that they reveal here is not good fruit. Everybody would agree with that, correct? And we have no other fruit on display other than that they were apparently associated with the church. Which we know... Just being associated with the church means really what? Nothing. Nothing. We know in 1 Corinthians 11, however, that there were believers in the Corinth church, in the church in Corinth, that died as a result of sin. They were believers. So we can't make a hard and fast judgment here. But again, I don't think this is the important point of the passage. It's not telling us where they are going to be in eternity. The main point in the passage is God is a holy God and sin will be judged. And be careful. It can either be discipline or judgment. That's a good thing to get. Now notice the offense or sin. They sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias did what many believers did, selling their possessions and belongings, as 245 stated, and land and houses, as 437 said, 37. He sold his property, he brought proceeds to the apostles, he laid money at the feet, at their feet. The only difference in the record is the selling and giving between Barnabas and, and Ananias is this little thing he put some aside. He put some aside. He kept back a portion for himself. Beloved, let me ask you a question. Is that sin? Is to keep a portion, to sell a piece of property and keep a portion back and give the rest to them sin? No. No. If you look at this, it looks as if no big deal. They decided to keep some. We might think Ananias did something everyone has done, right? How many of you have gotten a a, a bonus check and given only a portion of the bonus check? Everybody. How many of you have made a profit on something and turned around and gave a portion of that to the church? Yeah, right? If this was all we knew, the outrage may be bigger over this passage. But beloved, we know there was something more to the story. There was something going on. And guess where it was? In the heart. The problem was in the heart. Ananias had promised or committed to give all the proceeds of the sale to the Lord and his church. I find it interesting. The only thing that distinguishes Barnabas from Ananias is what went on inside the heart of the two contrasting givers. It's all about what's inside. 
And only God knew it. Up to the point they gave, only God could see and know. And Ananias and Sapphira, obviously, knew. Oh, this should be this should be shocking for all of you to think on. Think for a second. What that means is things can be going on in the church even. And in people's lives that only God knows about what's going on. And everything can look good on the outside. But yet there's wickedness, a root of wickedness inside the heart. Woo! This should scare every single one of us in the room. It should drive every single one of us to our knees. We should all be going, is there anything in me, God? Is there any root of bitterness in me? Is there any sin in me? Instead, we read passages and say, those wicked people. Missed the point. Again, if there had not been a supernatural revelation or exposure of the offense to Peter, we or the early church might have never known. (laughs) The implications and applications of this are really numerous for us. Wickedness is not always recognizable by the world. Wickedness is defined by what's going on in the heart, not in the outward. Wickedness does not go unnoticed by God. That's an important lesson to note. Secret wickedness leads to what? Death. Wickedness, even unrecognized by wickedness, has consequences still. In other words, even if we don't see it and recognize it, it still has a consequence. Again, Ananias put aside for himself. What's wrong with this? The issue is the heart. What was said, the God said to God, and how he presented it to the apostles. He presented it at the feet exactly the same way as the others had done it. Probably this took place in a public place, and this is very interesting. Where it appears Barnabas had good motives, laying it at the feet of the apostles in an open public place, probably... Ananias did it in a public place at the feet of the apostles in an open public place. One of them was wicked and the other one wasn't. Wow. I tend to believe the location played a part in Ananias and Sapphira's motives. I do believe, as uh, as you look at Acts 5.12, they met in Solomon's portico, so there was a lot of people around. A lot of people. Most likely, they did it there. If they wanted God to be pleased with their offering, they would have given what they committed to, right? But they didn't. It appears that they were just doing this for a show and to test the Holy Spirit. Hey, you know, God, yeah, you know, you know. And you know how our mind goes with that, don't you? How many times is our minds like this? What we justify. We say something to God. We say, I'm going to do this, God. And then we justify. We look for raggling Another way out. Some other way. What about this? How about here? Right? Don't we do that? I know that's what they did. They thought of every single way they could get around it. They make some frivolous promise. Oh, we'll sell it. 
we'll sell our property over there and we'll give it all to and everybody will see that we too love Jesus. Ah. But then up steps the prosecutor. Look at the prosecution. Whew. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? While the believers were filled with this Holy Spirit in Acts 4.31, notice Ananias was filled with Satan. Again, maybe a hint at Ananias' unconverted state. But again, the word filled means controlled. It's the same concept in both places. Filled carries the idea of being controlled by someone. Both were controlled. Barnabas was controlled and Ananias was controlled. But one was controlled for righteousness sake. The other was controlled for wickedness sake. In this case, both were controlled. Again, Peter would not have asked the question if Ananias was not responsible in some way. Now, what I mean by that is, look, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you a question. That sounds like it's, Ananias, uh, that's like, that sounds like it's Satan's fault. Why would you ask the question... Why has Satan made you do it? Why has Satan made you do it? Think about that question. I don't know. I'm not speaking for Satan. I can't talk for Satan. Satan, you know, Satan did it. Why would he ask that question? The answer is, is because in some way, the human soul relents to the Satan's leadings. We submit to his direction. It's not that you go into it with, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know, Satan led me this way, I didn't know. No! Garbage! You sin? It's your fault. Yeah, Satan participated in it. But you did it! Own it! Satan's influence and Ananias' submission to Satan's wicked direction caused Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land. Peter said, when you had it, it was yours. When you sold it, the proceeds were under your authority. Again, it appears that they didn't hatch the plan until after they had sold the property. So they might have even started with right motives. That's a scary thought. Wow, that'll shake you up a little bit. It appears they start out, and then they had it. They owned it. They had it under authority. Okay, we're going to do this. It's up to us to give it. It's our willful decision to give it. But at some point, they began to, well, let's see if we can give a portion and still get the same effect. And they must have told God. Can you imagine? They must have prayed. God, this is yours. This is yours. Again, the charge brought against Ananias is you promised all to the Lord but kept some back for yourself. You're guilty of lying. Peter's reasons with Ananias, why did you make the promise when it was up to you whether to sell and how much to give all along? 
The charge went to the heart of the issue, though. It was not lying to man, it was lying to God. A very serious charge. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me closely, though. If we, in the name of Christ, lie to somebody else, we're still treading on thin ice. (laughs) Because remember, whatever we do to the least of them, we are doing to him. So be careful. Don't justify your lies away by saying, well, you know, I'm doing it here. Because the reality is lying is lying. Notice the verdict. You have not lied to men but to God. Wow. That would be a scary moment, wouldn't it? And then the sentence. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. That would be swift judgment. Can you imagine a court case like that? No appeals. No appeals. It's dead. Capital punishment, you lied to God. Dead. Do you understand that we live in a culture that all they do is lie? We lie all the time. People stand before judges all the time and lie. Can you imagine if God kind of did this kind of just judgment every time we send right away all the time? What would it be like? Well, there would be nobody here. There'd be nobody here. We'd be dead, all of us. Why did he do it this swiftly? Again, this is who I am. Yes, I'm a saving God, but I'm also a holy God. We see this in Leviticus 10. We see this in 2 Samuel 6. David got angry, right? Why did he get angry? Well, I think we will really boil it down in some of the things we think on here. It all comes down to he wanted God to be only a loving and kind God, not a just and holy God. He kind of went against the way he was thinking a little bit. But ladies and gentlemen, this is who God is. And I think we need to know it, don't we? I'm fairly sure if we understand that God is this holy, sin will decrease, won't it? Again, lying should not be the pattern of our life anymore, right? And by the way, if you cover up another sin, that is called lying. Right? Where's our hope? Where's our hope? In the same God that's just. Because see, what he did was he sent his son to die for us. We're going to close here. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll we'll have two weeks of Ananias and Sapphira. Aren't you all excited about that? I want to give you some hope, though, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to listen to me closely. If we all got the just judgment that we all deserved right away swiftly, none of us would be here. All of us would be in eternity in hell forever and ever. I think that shocked my friend out here when I was talking to him. And I said, hey, you know, we all deserve to be in hell. 
all seven billion people on the planet and every person that's ever lived before it. We deserve to be in hell. He was quiet at that moment. That's a good thing. I said, but God. See what God did. God did a glorious thing. He sent His glorious Son, His holy, perfect, spotless Son, who came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross. And when He died on the cross, He was judged by the Father. And all the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God to pay for sin. To pay for the sin of all those who would commit and trust in Him. So that we don't have to fear God's eternal judgment. We can know that our sins are forgiven. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The holy, perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And for all of you that are believers and your fear of God has waned. Listen to the words of the Hebrew, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews. Be careful. Do you understand that our God is like a disciplining father? He scourges everyone he loves. God disciplines us. Don't take lightly God's discipline. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a glimpse of you. We pray that you will help us to have a more holy or a more accurate view of your holiness. God, you are good. You are just. We need you. Lord, we confess our sin to you. We ask that you help us. Expose our hearts and help us to find forgiveness in Christ alone. We commit the rest of the day to you. We ask that you be honored in our fellowship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.